this was a project where uh, it was being done for actually the king of Morocco who had, um, I guess they owned a lot of land around uh, a ski hill called Okemedin in the high Atlas mountains. And there was some skiing that happened there was happening. Hello folks, I'm Cam here with my co-host Jagmeet and welcome to the first ever PMG podcast series. Today's discussion will be solely on hybrid project management and this episode of podcast is sponsored by Jeremy Smensley, program coordinator, PMG program, Fleming College. My guest here today is an expert in project management, tourism demand and supply assessment, tourism business financial analysis and financial forecasting, meeting facilitation, post-secondary school instruction. He has a long list of professional experiences, and I would like to walk you through it. He was a consultant at Tourism and Hospitality at Leventhal and Harvard Consultant. He was a consultant, Leisure Time Industry, Marshall McLean, Monaghan Engineers and Consultant. His general manager for Pinestone Inn and Country Club at Halliburton, Ontario. Partner and Tourism Industry Consultant at Tourism Company. Course instructor, Faculty of Environmental Studies, Trent University. Program Coordinator, Project Management, Fleming College. Program Coordinator, Supply Chain Management, Global Logistics, Fleming. Faculty, School of Business and Information Technology, Fleming College. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the person of the day, Mr. Robert Darcy McKetrick. Welcome to the podcast, Darcy. We are happy to have a distinguished gentleman like you as our guest today. Uh, how's your day been, sir? So uh, thank you, Kamrul and Jagmeet. My, my day has been... Uh, great this is my teaching day it's the day i enjoy the most during the week because i get to spend time with all of you so it's been a great day thank you and i must say today's seminar was also amazing we got to learn a lot about user stories yeah i agree i agree i i second to that so before we get started i, I would just like to let our listener know that today's podcast will be 100 percent on hybrid project management so, uh, so let's get started without further ado Let's start with the overview, or let's try to understand this in a nutshell. So please tell us, Darcy, what is hybrid project management? Is this a new methodology? Okay, so hybrid, the way I would look at it, means that it's not purely a predictive project, which you learned about last semester, and the PMBOK guide and all the processes, and it's not purely agile uh, that we're talking about in 310 this semester it has elements of both uh, and so to an extent that we're blending those two approaches which are at, i would say opposite ends of a continuum uh, then we've got something that's hybrid so i mean it can be hybrid that is really closer to being an agile project or it could be hybrid that is really closer to being a predictive project with maybe a few agile components so some combination of those two ends of the continuum between predictive and adaptive. Now that we have an overview, um, we plan we wish to make this uh, whole thing feel like a podcast and, or say discussion and not like an insipid interview. Uh, so how about we dig a little bit into storytelling? Uh, we learned that 
you have a huge list of experience in the tourism industry that particularly or say mostly deals with hybrid project management. So please tell us about your experiences using hybrid project management and how does it differ from using other methodologies? Okay. So what I did in uh, preparation, I, I thought about some example projects, which I think illustrate. So I'm going to talk about uh, four different projects. If that's okay. Yep. Um, and I guess in alphabetical order, uh, the one was a, a sustainable tourism development strategy for Bolivia, the country in South America. <clears throat> one was a resort development strategy for Canadian investors in Cuba. Uh, another was um, the recreation of a heritage site um, for the Choctaw Indians in Mississippi in the U.S. And the fourth was developing a ski hill in Morocco. And I'm sure that people are going to think ski hill in Morocco. Isn't Morocco in Africa and isn't that close to the equator? How do you do a ski hill there? Well, they also they have the high Atlas Mountains there and they do have areas that have snow year round, even though they're very close to the equator. It's close to Europe, I believe. Uh, well, it's, uh, it is in the sense that you can certainly come across the Mediterranean from France uh, and into Morocco, which a lot of people do, uh, into, uh, into Casablanca. So um, those are the four projects I'm going to talk about and, uh, and illustrate. So stop me at any point or ask me to expand on something um, right. if, uh, whenever you want, okay? All right. Yeah. So uh, let me think about this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with one in which I think was more predictive in the beginning and became more um, agile as the project went along. So started off fairly heavily predictive and shifted to a fairly agile approach. Okay. And so for that, I'm going to talk about actually the project in Morocco. Okay, so um, this was a project where uh, it was being done for actually the king of Morocco, who had, um, I guess, they owned a lot of land around uh, a ski hill called Okemedin in the High Atlas Mountains. And there was some skiing that happened there, was happening there already. It wasn't, there wasn't anything happening, but it was very undeveloped. And he was interested in seeing if they could make it into a much more um, international destination for people, certainly from Europe, they might want to go someplace different. And what was kind of neat about it, of course, is that um, you could go from the ski hill and within about half an hour, you could be down in Marrakesh um, and uh, in a very different climate and a very different world. So it was kind of neat uh, and it had some neat features like that that you could mix together. So uh, there was a little bit of development there, but not a lot. And they wanted to make it into a, a much grander ski resort. So for um, me, I was part of a team working on it. Uh, there were landscape architects, there were architects, there were engineers, and there was myself and uh, my partners, and we are what I would call tourism planners. So what we tend to do mostly is to look for and identify the tourism development opportunities based on what you know, the resources are, uh, what opportunities exist, uh, what the supply and demand situations like in a country, um, you know, what kind of markets they think they can serve to try and, and identify those things we think can be successful. And typically we end up preparing a business plan or some kind of feasibility study based on that research. So the research that we do at the beginning is very predictive. Um, we know the sources that we're going to be going to in terms of understanding 
the numbers of visitors that are going to any particular place. Uh, we know of all those sources. Uh, we know that we're going to be uh, traveling around a country, um, looking at uh, all of its tourism sites, you know, doing the sort of physical inspections. Uh, we know what we're looking for in terms of things like access and visibility, and, and we have different criteria. So the process of doing that research to try and determine what the best opportunities are is pretty is very predictive. Uh, we we've done it many many times, and it's pretty much the same every time. So know what we're doing, know how long it's going to take. Uh, and so what we were doing is trying to understand, you know, in Morocco, if we're going to develop this ski hill, how is that going to fit with all these other things that happen in Morocco? How can we, you know, put them together in a way that it will be very attractive? And, you know, and who is coming and, and therefore who is likely to take advantage of this? So we do that work and we come back with some recommendations about, you know, who the major markets would be, what countries and what kind of people. And we talk about some of the kinds of experiences that should be part of this, this ski hill. Okay, that, uh, in terms of you know, the, the, obviously the entertainment and the other recreational facilities and the nature of the skiing that needs to be done and just a number of things. So very sort of very general recommendations pointing in a particular direction. So that's very predictive. But from that point on, then the landscape architects and the architects and then the engineers get involved and they take that information and they, you know, through a process, an iterative process, they come back with an initial plan an initial master plan showing how everything could be developed. And, you know, and then you sit down with the client and you spend time going over that and, and they give you lots of feedback on it, things that they like, things they don't like, they ask some questions. And then we go back and do it again. So we go back and revise this. And in this particular one, we probably went through about five or six revisions. Okay, uh, so very iterative. Um, and we're building in the feedback, which is an important part of Agile. And we're adapting to the changes that are being brought forward. Um, so from the point we you know, went into that part of the project, it became quite agile in nature. And the sprints were um, pretty well defined. I mean, we knew pretty much how much time it would take to do an, an iteration. And so that's what we went through. And at the end of the day, you know, you have a plan uh, that uh, the, the client is happy with and endorses and, and our work is done. So that's one I would say was predictive moving to agile. Um, when I think about one that kind of went the other way around, I think I would have to say Cuba, because <clears throat> this was in um, this was in the early '90s, '93, '94. And at that point, Cuba was still uh, very new to the tourism world, um, a very small destination. Um, Just came out of uh, communism. So yeah, exactly, uh, and no longer connected to the Soviet Union so tightly, you know. So they were needing to do some things to build their economy because prior to that, of course, the Soviet Union had supported them, and they really didn't need to do a lot. But now they're on their own, so they're looking at tourism as an opportunity. They're in the Caribbean, they're in a warm climate, they have beaches, they have all kinds of things going for them. But their infrastructure is very old. They hadn't built any hotels there since probably the fifties. You know, uh, and they don't have much of a way of a transportation network. So they have a lot of things that are problems. So why, why this was agile in the beginning is we were um, retained by a consortium of hotel companies, two or three companies here in Canada, who were given an opportunity to develop resort hotels anywhere in Cuba that they wanted to, to develop. Um, 
they were invited by the Cuban government to say, wherever you want to do it, come and develop your, your hotels. And so what we were doing was trying to figure out where would be the best places to do that. And it was agile in the sense that you know, Cuba having been in communism, nobody knew much about Cuba. So you couldn't go to the typical sources of information that I would go to to find out about you know, how many tourists and who was visiting. That just isn't available. And very few people had been to Cuba because it was and you couldn't really get there. So we were going into an area that we knew very little about specifically, a little bit about generally, and had no sense that we didn't have any maps, we didn't have anything to help us understand the island. So we were really from day one saying, okay, so where are we gonna go? What are we gonna look at? What are we looking for? What is Cuba like? We don't know. And so we were uh, basically escorted around the island by a military helicopter and, you know, and we could you know, say, we'd say, okay, oh, over there, that looks good. Drop down there. We want to look at that or go over here. So it was really a very exploratory type of thing, you know, and every few days we would sort of convene and say, okay, so what have we seen so far? What do we think is a possible opportunity? You know, and based on that, then we go and do some more research, some more physical research. And so at the end of that process, um, what we came up with were maybe half a dozen what we thought were really high potential uh, development opportunities to build a resort. But from that point on, it was very predictive because these are companies, resort hotel companies who have built resorts all over the world. They know exactly what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. Uh, you know, they can probably get down to the day how long it's going to take to do it. And so right. once, you know, they make a decision to go with a particular site, from that point on, it's a very much a predictive project. And so it shifted into a predictive mode where the first part was really a lot of discovering. Uh, almost felt like we were um, explorers in a new world. I mean, I know Cuba is not a new world, but in the sense it was, it's been closed up so long. So it was a lot of exploring and learning and, and, and then based on that, trying to decide what might work. So that's why that one sort of went the other way. Does that make sense? So in yes, in, in terms of Latin Americans, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, that the Cubans are the tallest people, right, in terms of Latin Americans, if you if you have noticed that. There are which, did you say? In terms of Latin Americans, I, I realize that the Cubans are the tallest people. Right, yeah, yeah that's true, yep. Yeah. Very, very um, interesting people in that they're very well educated. One of the things that the Soviet Union did allow them to do is have a very robust education system. Uh, and a very low, one of the lowest uh, illiteracy rates or one of the highest literacy rates in the world. Uh, probably one of the highest rates of people attending post-secondary education, university degrees in the world at the time, uh, because their system was being supported by the Soviet Union. Uh, so lots of resources. Uh, so highly, highly educated people. Uh, they had one of the best health systems in the world. One of the things that was happening from a tourism perspective in a small way was what we call health tourism. There were people going to Cuba for medical procedures that they couldn't get anywhere else in the world. You know, so it was an interesting, fascinating country in some ways, and then in other ways, so undeveloped and different. Um, so it was- And at this time, so, so much chaos going on, so much chaos going on, like assassins and stuff like that. That's what I grew, grew up reading about Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it, was a, it was interesting to be there, that's for sure. So. Um, that, and that was a project, a kind of project that I hadn't really worked on uh, in my consulting practice, where at the beginning it was so agile. I mean, most of the project I work, work on would have been very predictive in the beginning and could be 
agile, depending on what we found in the beginning. But this was exactly the reverse of that. So that's why it sticks in my mind. Uh, this is so interesting, so insightful. Yeah, it is interesting. <laughs> and yeah. you have got a lot of experience there, I must say. So, and for, for our listener, for our listener, I must say that if the requirements are clear, then the most probably the requirement, the approach would be predictive. And if their requirements are uncertain, then we should go for adaptive approach. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I, I think if your requirements are clear, then you want to be as efficient as possible with your resources. And the most efficient way is to spend the time putting together a plan and following the plan. So you use the resources very efficiently. But you know, if they aren't, then that makes no sense. Uh, and so it really is more like a um, discovery or, re or research and development kind of project. Mm -hmm. Okay, this leads me to asking you another question. This might sound redundant and may perhaps sound inane to people who are already in the filler community. Uh, but I want this to be super clear for aspiring project managers. So anyway, could you could you please tell us as in how do you discern what approach is best for a project and what kind of analysis or tools and techniques do you run to identify the methodologies required for any project? Good questions. <clears throat> so the first thing I'll say is um, for most of my career working on consulting projects, we didn't even know there was such a thing as project management methodology. We were out there doing this, we were just doing work. And I think the whole field of project management has really blossomed in probably the last 10 or so years, maybe 15. So for much of it, we, were, we didn't really think we were doing it. So in terms of picking a methodology, I wasn't picking a methodology. I mean, I was doing things like, I didn't call them that, but I had, you know, I'd have a spreadsheet and I'd have some timelines on it, which we would now call a Gantt chart. I didn't know it was a Gantt chart, but I was just sort of figuring out, you know, okay, how long is it going to take to do this? And, and which should I do first? What order should I do things in? And so we were doing all of these kinds of things. Um, and how did we decide what to do? Um, <clears throat> I think <clears throat> the simplest answer is that we, we were spending a lot of time asking our clients a lot of questions to figure out exactly what they needed. Um, and we would use things that have worked well in the past if it seemed like it would fit in a particular situation. And if uh, it was a situation we found ourselves in where none of the things we'd done in the past in terms of activities seemed like appropriate, <clears throat> then we would uh, decide, okay, so we need to brainstorm this. How are we gonna do this? <clears throat> and we would you know, come up with some ideas and I guess we at this point we're being very agile we'd try some things and if they worked great and if they didn't we'd change course and try something different now having said all of that you, you know as a project manager listening to me you'd say well that's great but um how did you do in terms of you know managing the the money side of the business because if you're experimenting and some things aren't working you gotta go back and do it again doesn't that get really expensive for your for your clients well, it would get really expensive for our clients if, in fact, they were paying us on a basis of, of our time and materials. But the reality is most of our work was on fixed price, uh, fixed price contracts. So the bottom line is that on some projects, we made lots of money and other projects, we lost lots of money because we were figuring it out as we went. And if we were making mistakes, it was on our time and our dime, and we would have to figure out how to get back on track. Now. Over time, I guess we did enough projects that the ones where we were 
unsure how to approach them uh, became fewer and fewer in number and we were able to use techniques we used in the past and so how did we decide we, we looked at a project and said how is this like other projects we've done and based on that how will we approach it and so we weren't saying well we're going to use a particular named project management approach but we would say we're going to use these things that we've done before uh, and so that was pretty much how we how we did it to be quite honest yeah, I, I really like the way you break things down for us. Like, um, it's easy for us to understand things at one go when you are teaching us, you know, <laughs> and uh, you make it so simple for us to process the whole thing. And and I tell everybody, simpler the better makes my life easier. So I do not want to consume the whole time. So here's my next question for you. So um, the other day, uh, we were going through the Agile Practice Guide and we realize that the PM has a significant role in predictive projects. However, there is a debate that the PM isn't important in an adaptive environment. So where does the PM stand in a hybrid project? That's a good question. <clears throat> well, um, I think the simple answer to that is to the extent that a project is more predictive then the role of the project manager is going to be more important. And to the extent that a project is less predictive or more agile, then the traditional role of a project manager is going to be less important. It's going to be a different role and it's going to be shifting more to a, as we talked about, servant leader or some kind of a support role. So I would still consider that to be project management, but the kind of project management changes. Um, you're very much now a problem solver, um, supporting people as they encounter problems, um, making sure that things move along without dictating what gets done. So it's, there's still a role, it's still important, but it shifts. Whereas, you know, the more predictive it is, then you really are the person who is spending the time uh, getting the plan together and then you're managing the plan. And that, of course, is a very different role, a very directive kind of role. <clears throat> so I would say in a hybrid, the answer to that is there isn't one answer. It would, it would depend, again, on the kind of hybrid project. Um, and if you take my two examples, for example, <coughs> excuse me, um, in the case of Morocco, um, which was very predictive at the beginning, uh, and for that particular phase, uh, we would have were the project managers, and we were very much directing what was happening and laying it all out and keeping us on track. Um, but when we went to the Cuba situation, uh, we weren't acting in that way at all as a, a project manager. In fact, probably we had a I think we had one person on our team who you know, had been to Cuba a few times already and sort of getting ready for this, who became to some extent um, the scrum master or the servant leader because they had the most knowledge, they became the person we turned to when we needed to figure out how to overcome an obstacle that we hadn't encountered before. So they kind of took on that role, but we were very much self-organized in terms of how we went about doing our work. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. After listening to you, I think that we have a chance to learn like how actually things work. We are reading, we are reading things, but after listening <laughs> to you, that's actually good. And here's a, here's a news for our listener. The sixth Pembroke edition, seventh edition, yes. actually, sorry. The seventh edition will emphasize more on hybrid project management and business processes. So when we were looking more into this, we came across the term blended project management. 
And if you could answer this, and if you have any idea, then could you please tell us how is hybrid project management different from blended project management? It may not be different at all. It may just be the way people are using terms. Um, oh. because my understanding, and I haven't spent a lot of time looking at the seventh edition. I have done a bit of research, but I, I, I agree with you in the sense of how it's shifting away from the very emphasis on predictive and following you know, processes to more um, principles, which of course is what Agile is based on, right? Agile manifesto and it has principles. So it is clearly, there's a recognition, I think, within the field that the, the era of most projects being predictive is past. Um, the era of all projects being agile may never happen. Um, so that we're going to be somewhere in the middle. And so this you know, idea of hybrid or, as you say, blended, you know, whatever term you want to use, uh, I think it, it just makes a lot of sense. Um, use the most effective methods we have depending on the conditions of the project is really what it's saying, right? And to some extent, the PMBOK guide started to recognize that in the sixth edition, because in the sixth edition is the first time that they had in each um, knowledge area, and I think with most processes, they talked about tailoring, okay? And tailoring is something that was not in the fifth guide. Like, there's no sense of tailoring. The fifth guide was, this is how you do a project. Uh, but they started to introduce, and I think the recognition there was that, yeah, there are a lot of blended or hybrid projects that could use some of these things, but they might have to change them a little bit. They might have to adapt them or tailor them for, to fit. You know, and I think that is what has helped shift them now to the seventh edition, where they're moving away from being very prescriptive about how to do things and more about principles uh, and, and approaches um, uh, as, as the focus. So. To me, it, it's a very logical progression that we're getting there. Um, it's taken a while, but I think it's very logical. And I think probably the fact that we you know, have so many more projects now that are uh, in areas where we are exploring things that we haven't done before, that requires more of an agile approach, obviously. Um, we have more of those kinds of projects, you know, to the extent that our, our technology has, over the last 20 years, 30 years, expanded so substantially has opened up all kinds of areas, right? Artificial intelligence, right? Name it. And, and none of those are ever going to be projects you did predictive because we don't know what we're doing. We're, it's exploring. You know, so I, I think it's a very logical shift. Now, that also, I, I would say to you, though, that there's always going to be projects uh, that are going to benefit from having a predictive approach because it's something that if we've done it enough times, we've figured out the best way to do it, and we're going to do it that way again. And maybe, I mean, it's another bridge. It may be in a different place, but it's another bridge. We know how to do bridges. Let's do bridges the best way we can do bridges. And we wouldn't want to approach them from an agile point of view. So I think there's always going to be uh, benefits to purely predictive projects, but I think they're going to be fewer and fewer in kind, and we're going to find more in that middle ground of some blended or hybrid. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I'm getting more inquisitive now. And having said that, my next question is, is there any advantages or disadvantages of hybrid methodology? I know that this isn't going to be definite answer to this, but what do you think the advantages and disadvantages in general would be? Interesting question. Um, 
I think whenever we can be um, provide clear direction on how to do something, then we can do things better. So to the extent that we can, you know, have methodologies which have defined steps about how to do things, and clearly that's where the PMBOK guide came from. But even as we move into, you know, hybrid or blended, if we can find some particular methodologies that apply to a number of situations and we can describe them really well, then that will mean that those projects, I believe, will be more efficient, okay? Um, so to the extent that we can do that, uh, we can make hybrid uh, more effective, that, and that would be an advantage. The disadvantage is the other side of that, which is as we move into areas that we haven't done before, and it, I guess it, re it reminds me a bit of, I guess, of, of our consulting career and getting into projects we've never done. The disadvantage is that it's not very efficient because we're, it's trial and error. We're trying things and we don't know whether it's going to work or not. You know? And uh, so the extent that we're doing more and more trial and error, then it's inefficient. It means it costs a lot more to do a project, takes a lot more time. And so that would definitely be a disadvantage. But I, I mean, I think we, um, as project managers, as human beings, we're good at, at gathering information from our experiences and, and, and using that going forward, the whole idea of lessons learned, right? So I think the more that we engage in blended and hybrid projects, I think the more that we're going to start adding to our body of knowledge so that those areas where we have to do a lot of trial and error will get smaller in number, you know, and we'll have a number of ways and, and people will be able to say, oh, that's, that's the project where we should use this kind of hybrid methodology because we'll have gained enough knowledge and not enough that we know that that's a good way to approach that. So I think over time, the disadvantages will um, become less as we gain more knowledge and the advantages will become greater because we can be more tailored to the project, right? We can customize the approach to the project rather than trying to fit a project into a project method methodology. And that's where we've come from. I mean, I think that's why you see PMI moving to their seventh edition and that I think they recognize that to some extent people felt like, you know, they were being forced to take their project and fit it into a methodology. The PMBOK guide, rather than saying, here's my project, how should I, how's the best way to do it? And I think we're now are moving towards the other way. Uh, here are all the things we can do, all the tools, all the things we've learned. Let's pick the ones that together give us the best uh, result in this project and let's tailor what we're going to do to the project rather than fit the project into a methodology. Yeah, so right. after learning from years and implementing practices in in actual projects, now we know when to use some things and when to leave them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now this leads me to asking you another question. <laughs> so so do we do we use a work background structure in a hybrid project to represent a task organization? Mm, interesting. So say the question again. Do we use a work work breakdown structure in hybrid project to represent the task organization? Hmm. Um, so the answer is maybe <laughs> a little bit of yes, a little bit of no. Uh, it, it, and I'll go back to I sound like a bit of a broken record, but if the project is a hybrid project that uh, is has a strong predictive element, then something like a work breakdown structure. Um, is a, is a very useful tool. It's, it's a critical tool. Uh, and so you would absolutely use it. But if it was a project that had just small 
elements of predictive to it and was a lot more exploratory in nature or agile, you can't use it because, you know, it, it's, uh, as you know, work, brown, work breakdown structure is taking deliverables and breaking them down to work packages. Well, if we don't really know exactly what those deliverables look like, then there's no way we can break them down. You know, it's kind of a waste of time. So there is a point where you, know, you would step away from a work breakdown structure because it really isn't uh, helping you move forward whatsoever because there's just too much uncertainty around the deliverables. But if there's a certain a reasonable degree of certainty, then a work break breakdown structure is uh, a very good tool, and I would absolutely use it. Yeah, well, I realize I'm jumping all over the place, and that's okay. I'm just just trying to get down as many questions as I can. But anyway, would you would you like to describe to our listeners uh, the project lifecycle of a hybrid project, when and how those sprint backlogs are determined, and how do we address the measure of success? And by measure of success, I mean um, how the product owner verifies the claims made by the team, claims as in they are behind or ahead of the schedule and stuff like that. Okay. Well, um, in the predictive elements of a hybrid project, wherever they happen to be, um, you're likely going to have some type of a schedule, some type of a Gantt chart, some type of... Um, a work breakdown structure. And so you're going to have the baselines you need in order to measure how you're doing. And in terms of your life cycles, you're going to be uh, in the predictive element, you're going to be spending a fair bit of effort and time in the planning, uh, doing it sort of once for whatever piece is predictive, and probably not doing a lot of planning after that, you know, so that you're going to go through that kind of life cycle where there's a lot of planning effort and an accepted plan, and then you ramp up and you implement the plan. So you're going to have some of those tools in place to do those measurements. But then when you, as you move to the more agile parts of a project, um, you're going to, of course, not have um, a scope baseline. You're not going to have a schedule baseline. Um, you're not going to have any kind of a Gantt chart. So in terms of measuring success, uh, it becomes in some ways a lot simpler because success is you finish the sprint, you demonstrate what you've done, and the product owner says, that's perfect. Well, it's excellent. You've done a great job. You're exactly where you need to be. Or you do a, a demonstration and the product, uh, product owner said, there's a few things in there I like, but there's a lot of things in there that really aren't of much value. Okay, so we've missed the mark. So we're going to have to adapt and change and go off in a little different direction. So the measures of success are less technical, but in some ways a lot easier to understand. It's your customer, your product owner telling you, yeah, that, that's something that I can use and that's valuable or that's not valuable. And that's the ultimate measure of success. And even in a predictive project, right? That is, at the end of the day, the ultimate measure of success. I mean, as project managers, we get hung up in predictive projects on know how we're doing and what our schedule variance is and our cost variance and our cpis and spis and all those sorts of things because that is what we do by nature you know when we're status reporting but really uh, if you step back from it a successful project project is one where at the end of it you know the key stakeholders are happy they're getting something of value and which is the same in an agile project right so the ultimate measure of success on, in both types is the same is that are those key stakeholders, is that customer happy? Did they get what they needed? And if the answer is yes, then you're successful. Makes sense. 
So, so what happens when a team fails to finish a sprint backlog? Is the sprint <laughs> ex extended? Right. Well, um, I guess it depends uh, to some extent whether it's an iteration, iterative-based agile or a flow-based. Uh, if it's iterative-based, and so it has a very fixed time period, and you've, you know, you've picked a number of things off your backlog, and those are the things that you had committed to doing. <laughs> and if you get to the end of the sprint and you haven't finished them all, um, what's the impact of that? Well, you're not going to have delivered as much value as you uh, expected to. So your, your customer, your product owner is not going to be as happy. Um, it's going to have some impact on where you go next, because uh, if you haven't got all of those things that you wanted addressed in the first sprint, you're either going to have to pick them up later, which means you have to find a way to, you know, to ex expand your capacity, uh, or you're going to have to do some shifting. Right. So, <coughs> um, and that's an iteration based. If it's incremental, it's a little less of an issue because you know you're not into the rigid time boxes. You essentially work on a sprint until you have completed um, the uh, user stories. You have completed the features that you had committed to doing, so that you can demonstrate, uh, and then you have a full demonstration. So it's not there isn't as great an impact, if you will, on um, flow based. In fact, the concept of being late really doesn't even apply because what is late? There is no late. We don't really know how long it's going to take to do. We have an idea, and when we're ready, we'll demonstrate it. Okay, so there isn't really a late. Um, so, in terms of incremental, I, I I realize what I take from this is that uh, things go back to the product backlog. Mm -hmm. uh, but does that mean that 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 particular sprint was unsuccessful? And if you say no, how would you refine the backlog? How how would you prioritize things now? Mm. Was it unsuccessful? Um, if you if you created anything of value, then it wasn't unsuccessful. Uh, if you created only a little bit of value, then it was moderately successful. If you created a lot of value for all of the user stories that you intended to, then it's highly successful. And how does that affect you know what happens with your backlog? Well, if you've been moderately moderately successful, then that means there's still a lot of things, a lot of user stories, a lot of product things in your product backlog that haven't been addressed yet uh, and they're going to have to be addressed. So it probably means that ultimately uh, when this project is finished, whatever overall time period has been allowed for it, you may not get as far and produce as much value uh, than if you had been highly successful at the beginning and every sprint thereafter, then you probably would have got a lot farther down your backlog of user stories and created a lot more value for your customer. Makes sense. I have learned so many things. Me too. Yes. So here is my next question, Darcy. What purpose can EVM on a hybrid project? Have? I'm sorry, say that again, Jagmeet. What pur what purpose can EVM serve on a hybrid project? <laughs> right, EVM, good old EVM, yes, earned value management. <laughs> I bet that was something you really enjoyed doing in Accounting 90, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not, not so much. <laughs> um, well, it, again, for the agile parts of a hybrid project, or to the extent that a, a hybrid is more agile and predictive, it's of absolutely no value. Uh, don't even waste your time doing it. <laughs> okay? It's just a waste of time that could be put into actually producing something of value. But again, to the extent that it's a project where, uh, at least for some phases or some parts of it, uh, you're working predictively, 
then it is valuable because it's a measure that helps you understand how efficient you are uh, and helps you identify you know, problems so that you can solve them and so you can maximize your efficiency. Um, and that's really what it's all about. EVM is just really um, giving you information to try and help you identify whether some issues or problems so that you can fix them so that you can you know, get back on track get back onto your plan. So um, if there is a significant predictive component, then EVM will be very valuable. But if there isn't, um, then don't, don't spend any time on it. Yeah, that's, that's so informative. So my next question is, and we actually can't overlook this popular question. This is something you get asked all the time. It's a popular one. Do we do scheduled crashing in a project running on hybrid methodology? <laughs> and if we do, if we do. And the next one is how do we manage and implement change in this type of projects? Okay. So let's go to the scheduled crashing one. So what do you think my answer is going to be to that? We what can't do Jack, How am I going to answer that? <laughs> we can't do crashing. <laughs> Well, yeah, if we don't have a schedule, there's plan. nothing to crash, right? Yeah, yeah. we just plan sprint and we do whatever we plan. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the simple answer is, uh, if there is no baseline, then you can't crash, because crashing just is about, you know, shortening uh, that or that baseline. So if we don't have it, there's no crashing. It's just a reminder for people, because they keep on asking this question. <laughs> well, of course. No, I, I understand that. I mean, it's... Uh, as I said, you, you spent a whole semester and every course you took was pretty much all about the PMBOK guide and, and predictive approach. So it would make sense you'd come away from that thinking, you know, to, to the extent you really were engaged in that and, and took all that information in, it's a, it's a hard shift to say, oh, okay, so we don't use some of those things? Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I understand that. But... Um, so that is a simple answer, really. If we don't have a schedule, then there is no crashing. And I guess the, the, the other part, more subtle part of that answer is one of the things that agile teams um, strive to do is to find a sustainable pace of work. Okay. What that means is, you know, based on the number of people and their capacity, you know, how many hours they've got available each week and other commitments, <clears throat> they want to get to a point where they can be very, it's funny I use this word, very predictable about how much work they can get done each week. Okay. They want it, and it's sustainable. What they don't want is a situation where, okay, they work this week and they got a certain amount of things done. And then they realize as they look at what's left and they only have one week left in their sprint, we've only got you know, maybe a third of our work done and we have two thirds left to do. And so they all start working 10 hour days you know, or 12-hour days to get it done so they can meet their objective at the end of the sprint, okay? In a sense, that's a kind of crashing taking place, right? They're not, they don't have a schedule to crash, but in fact, they are adding more resources to this to try and get more work done. Well, that's something that Agile is um, very clear uh, that they don't want. That's, that's something you don't want to do. You want to find what is a sustainable pace that can be repeated sprint after sprint after sprint. Because you don't have any kinds of baselines, you know, to, to, to measure and figure out, you know, where you are in a project, to have a sustainable pace is a bit of a surrogate for that. If I have a, we have a team that's a sustainable pace and I know how much 
they can produce, or we know how much we can produce each time, then we can predict pretty well how far we're going to get in the three months left we have on this project, right? Because we have a sustainable pace. We can keep it up week after week after week. And that's what we want to aim for, because that allows us then to have some element of predictability about how much work we will get done, right? If we don't have that, then it is really difficult to predict with any accuracy how far we're going to get through our list of user stories and through our backlog. You know, if one week we're working like crazy, like madmen, but then, you know, half the team gets sick because they're working 12-hour days and so they're all off. And so the next week productivity drops like crazy. Right? That's the last thing you want because uh, there's no sense and, and, and the, the product owner and the customer can have no confidence about how far we're going to get when you've got these ups and down kinds of things happening. We want a nice, steady line of sustainable uh, of Sustainable that, that takes the place basically of your schedule baseline. Makes sense. And how do we manage and implement change? I think this right. is change. Thank you. That was the second part. I knew there was a second part to your question. I was just trying to think what it is. I'm old, Jag. My brain forgets things. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that little bit of a hint. Uh, you're a bad man today. So you <laughs> yeah. <shouldn't forget. laughs> yes, I'm timeless. I'm timeless. Um, all right. So uh, the really easy answer to that is that, uh, you know, we don't implement any kind of change control in an agile project because agile projects are about embracing change. We are looking for and, yes. and um, asking for change. That's why we do the demonstrations and the feedback. And based on that, we change what we're doing. So we don't have any project management techniques for dealing with change in an agile project because we deal with the change through the actual project work. We just do it. Um, but as you know, because uh, I'm sure you struggled with the whole change control process <laughs> in the last semester, yes. you know, in obviously in predictive projects, uh, because we are focusing on efficiency and trying to stay as close as possible to our schedule, I mean, we use the change control process to understand the impact of a potential change, right? Change control process, I think a lot of people, when they talk about it, they get it a little bit wrong. It's not really about controlling change. The purpose of change control is not to stop change at all. The purpose of change control is to help people who need to make the decision know the impact of this change. So that so when we, we make we the decision, they know that it's either going to extend the time frame or it's going to add more cost or it's going to change quality, or it's going to reduce scope. They need to know so that when they make that decision, they understand the impact of the decision. Okay. So project managers in a predictive project, their job is not to keep change from happening at all. Their job is to be, whenever a change is proposed, to do the necessary research, you know, looking at their schedules and their baselines, and to be able to come back and say, if you do this, this will be the impact. You know, okay, and so then, you know, the stakeholder, the sponsor makes a decision and knowing what will happen by making the decision. And so that's the rule. So even though we call it change control, I always thought it was a bit of the wrong term because it gives you an idea that you're trying to keep changes under, you know, kind of not let them happen. But that's not what we're doing at all, really. We're simply allowing that when a change is going to be introduced, that we understand exactly what will happen to the project when that, ha and therefore we make a decision knowing the impact of that change. 
Yeah, so, so we create a workaround, we do impact analysis, and then we make recommendations. We provide options. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I have read some articles, and even in the Agile Practice Guidebook, mm -hmm. we understand that the Agile is more used by the IT industry, or we can say software development companies. So which industry is the hybrid methodology more relevant to? Well, consultants. <laughs> Certainly in the tourism consulting business, we use it a lot. I think probably, um, I'm just, I'm just trying to think for a second. I'm sorry, Ryan's going to in terms of industries. You know, um, I think the answer to that question is that over time, you're going to find the hybrid used in almost all industries to some extent. Because um, I, I think to the extent that uh, businesses and organizations embrace continuous improvement, so they're, you know, they buy into the lean principle of always trying to get better at what they do. Um, I think they're going to be looking for ways to uh, get better results out of projects that they take on. So I, I think they're going to be looking to adapt and change some things that aren't working very well for them, um, which I think is going to lead to uh, tailoring of predictive um, tools or introducing more agile tools where there is less certainty. So they, they spend time uh, you know, implementing change rather than uh, evaluating change, for example. So which industries is it most in? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know um, because I worked in the consulting business and certainly tourism consultant, a lot of projects would be hybrid in nature because there's always an element of uh, discovery or research at some point in the project that is uh, a little bit uncertain about where we're heading with that. Um, and I think that's probably true in a lot of other uh, businesses where you bring in consultants to, to help because consultants by nature are kind of doing some investigation and giving you options of where you might go with something. And so there's a certain amount of uncertainty in that process. So I would say you're going to see a lot of hybrid projects because you, know, you don't really know until you start doing some research what you're getting and therefore where that's going to take you. You, know, you have a sort of a general idea, but lots of times you start pulling the threads and you find something you didn't expect, you know, and then you find something else. And so now you're in kind of uncharted territory and and then you're starting to become or need to be more agile and be more open to changing direction based on that. So I, I think we're going to see it in many industries. Um, and so I, I don't know the, if I can answer your question directly, Jagmeet. I don't know where it's used the most, but I think we will see it in probably almost every aspect of, uh, of business and, and possibly to some extent government, although I'm not sure about that. I have to think more about that. I'm not sure. Yeah, for now, it totally makes sense. Yeah, when the Pembox 7 is out, we will know more about this. There we go. <laughs> Absolutely. So my next question is on project management softwares and the invisible hands of project managers, I must say. So my question is, is there any particular project management software best suitable for hybrid project management? Hmm. I think that's probably a question that if you ask 10 people, you might get 10 different answers. Because um, I think that's going to come down to a personal preference kind of thing. And did you did you use any 
of the software? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, we used Excel. <laughs> <laughs> because there wasn't anything else at the time. It was the best thing we had. That's when, I, when, I first, when I first learned about spreadsheets, I thought this was the most amazing thing in the world. I thought, wow, spreadsheets. It was Look still what amazing. I can do with spreadsheets. I can do anything with spreadsheets. This is a remarkable tool. So it was it was an incredibly powerful project management software, yeah. I guess. Wasn't necessarily meant to be that. Um, so going back to your original question, I, I think it would depend on the project management, the project team, uh, what their preference is, whether they're people who like to have uh, a lot more um, customizable elements of a software or whether they like things to be, you know, fairly narrowly defined and and to the extent you know you like one or the other, you're going to favor one thing. I mean, I really like Microsoft Planner um, as a tool because I think it's uh, it has enough structure to it to work in a whole variety of types of hybrid projects and a lot of agile type projects. Um, it has enough structure to do that, but it also has enough flexibility that you can modify it. You know. It, in terms of what your buckets are or what your tasks are. Like there's so many places where you can modify it to go off in a particular different direction or emphasize something different that you can use it in a lot of different situations. So I think it's, personally, I really like it. It's, it's to me a little bit like uh, um, when I first learned about spreadsheets and how great they were. This is like when I found Planner, I thought, yeah, I love Planner. I mean, um, Microsoft Project is an incredibly powerful piece of software. I'm sure you all had lots of fun with that. That usually gives students incredible headaches working with Microsoft Project. Um, but it's, I mean, it's basically a, a spreadsheet-based kind of software, right? Uh, although it's really got two databases that are working together, which is what makes it so complex. Um, and, and a lot of uh, project managers will tell you that they can use that for agile projects. If they're a good enough user, they can modify it to, to do what they need it to do on an agile project. Okay. Personally, I wouldn't. It seems to me too highly structured in a predictive sense. I think I'd spend too much time modifying it to try and fit things in places they didn't fit well. So I probably wouldn't use it and I would never recommend it. But someone else who's a very good user could say, yeah, I love it for agile projects. So uh, I think it's a tough question to ask or to answer, I should say. It's a good question to ask, tough question to answer. And I think each project manager uh, probably over time learns about themselves, you know, what works well for them and they'll gravitate to a particular software that, that fits their particular way of working. I think it's interesting to listen that now we know about lots, lots of software out there, but you have managed projects by using Excel. <laughs> that's, that's incredible, right? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, but Excel is still a powerful tool to this day. Yeah. yeah, it was the best thing we had. So it's what we used. Yeah. Over the last few years of projects, yeah, I gravitated to other types of things and I used uh, Microsoft Planner a little bit. Um, I used um, Basecamp. Um, I mean, I've used some different things from time to time. But for, I say, most of my career, it was Excel. And I essentially built my own templates, right? So, I mean, it was so, it was so useful to me because as I you know, used it for different things. I would build a template and then I'd use that template again. 
you know, so I guess I was building my own software to some extent. Um, but then over the last few years, it's been a lot more come out that had some other features, you know, that, that Excel is a bit limited to. I mean, the whole sharing among teams, right? A lot of software has that so built into it now. It's so easy to to share and work on things at the same time. I mean, you can do that with Excel. It's just not as easy to do. You know, so I think they've just found ways to do some of the things a lot easier. Wow, there is so much learning going on right now. <laughs> For me too. For me too, gentlemen. Yeah. Great questions you're asking. Things I haven't really thought about too much. And now we are shifting towards student side. Like freshers often commit, commit commit mistakes in gathering the requirements, be it developing a product backlog or developing the project management plan. So, what would be your message to them on this? Um, well, the first one I, I think is a, a message I'm pretty consistent about is uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with making a mistake. Uh, what I, I think is wrong is if you make a mistake and you don't learn from it. So making mistakes, um, I think some of the best things I've learned are through mistakes that I've made, and I've made lots of them. So uh, that's not, that, that in itself is not a problem. Um, but I guess the other answer to that question is, um, lots of times I think the mistakes are made because not enough time is spent really understanding um, what the process is uh, and what it is you're trying to achieve. There's maybe uh, a tendency to, to read something fairly quickly and say, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. And then you rush off and you really don't get it. And then, and then once you start using it, you realize you don't get it and you make a lot of mistakes. Okay, so you learn from the mistakes. But in that situation, you probably could have avoided some of those mistakes if you'd taken a bit more time. You know, maybe read something two or three times, maybe you know, looked at a, a short video, maybe thought about it a bit before you started to do it, that you probably would have avoided some of the mistakes that you make by rushing off uh, to try something or to do something before you really understand it. You know? So you'll never fully understand it until you do it. So you can't wait until you, you fully understand it or you'll never do anything. But you know, I think you're, there is a, a tendency with a lot of students to want to get things done quickly, uh, but maybe not as effectively as they should. And so they rush off to do them too quickly, and and then they encounter mistakes they could have avoided. Wow, great observation! I really like that answer. You totally nailed it. So yeah, me too. I was thinking to ask you questions on tailoring conditions, but then you have already answered that like a couple of times now. But while while listening to you, I I got a question like it certainly emerged inside my head right now, and I promise this is going to be the last one. So people argue that if you are to build a dam or a reservoir, then just proceed and finish it. Um, in other words, they say there is no need for project management. Why waste time doing project management or spend hell lot of time planning? Uh, what is the need for it at all? How, do, how would you tackle, that, tackle this argument? Um, the answer to this question would really help folks looking forward to pursuing project management. Mm. Okay. Uh, I think the answer to that question lies in um, in the complexity of a project. If I'm um, going to do a project, if I'm going to um, paint my office, and so 
you know, the materials that I need are pretty simple. I need some paint, I need a paintbrush, I need some sandpaper probably, I need some masking tape. Um, and in terms of human resources, I can do it myself. Should I spend any time putting together a project plan? Probably not. Why? What would be the benefit? I can't see any benefit. I mean, I'm going to be doing the work. I got everything I need. It's all here. Just get on with it. But as you start to move into more complex projects, and you talked about a dam, now you're involving thousands of people, um, probably hundreds of different disciplines, um, hundreds of different suppliers, um, all kinds of different materials. And these things all have to be available at the time you need them, where you need them. Um, to be as efficient as possible. So you need certain people in a certain place with certain materials and certain skills at this time uh, to complete the next part of the dam. And if they're not there, uh, you know, the project is going to take forever or, or not be completed or have all kinds of quality issues. In that situation, do we need a project plan? Absolutely we do. Because we need something that everybody can refer to to know where they fit. Where do they fit in this project? Where do I do my work? What am I doing? What do I need to do my work? How much time am I going to have for my work? And what materials am I going to need? Um, so that we can organize and have all those things in place. So when it comes time for that person to do their task, they can do their task. You know, and without those, that kind of organization, um, then complex projects, I think, are going to be just chaos. You know? uh, and, and I think if they are successful at all, it's going to be merely by chance, not by design. It's just they're lucky somehow it worked out. Um, so that, I think, is the answer to that question. Uh, you need the plans. Uh, the more complex that a project gets, meaning the more pieces there are to it, the more people involved, the more resources, the more time, uh, then the plan becomes more and more important um, to help coordinate all of that. And that's really what it comes down to, is the coordinating of all that activity. Right? And the other part of it, I think, is that sometimes gets forgotten. It, and it's not just the plan. I mean, the plan is important, but it's the planning, the actual planning. When you're doing the planning on a complex project, you have to think about so many things, right, in preparing a plan. And a number of people have to do. And by doing all that thinking, you end up exploring all kinds of assumptions and risks and things that you wouldn't have explored if you hadn't gone into trying to prepare a plan. And so by going through that process, you become much more familiar with the project and therefore are ready to deal with unexpected things because you you know it it's like you've just spent so much time in your in your head thinking about it you just know it and you can respond to things and if you don't spend the time planning then you don't get to know a project that well and you have difficulty responding to unexpected things and what to do about them so i think the planning and the plan both are really important uh, and the more complex a project, the more important that they become. All right. So we realize that we don't have much time to continue. And I'm, I'm once again very happy for your contribution. I really like that Batman shirt. Uh, <laughs> and I have learned a lot in one sitting. And I, I, I totally believe Jagmeet will agree to this. I hope our listeners... Our listeners uh, have enjoyed too. So ma many thanks for all these insights, sir. So it's been a pleasure. I really uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, 
the fact that I was a consultant means that I like to talk and I like to hear myself talk. So you've given me a great opportunity to do that. So thank you for that. We were learning, so that's <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm glad you were learning. Um, so it worked for both of us, but it was a pleasure. And you've, you did give me some really good questions to make me stretch and think about things I hadn't thought about. So thank you for that too. I, really, I always enjoy when I have to think about something I haven't thought about in a while. So thank you for that. It's my pleasure. Not a problem. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and stay tuned for we have exciting episodes coming up in days ahead. Thank you very much and have a good day. Mm-hmm.